Let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the good word in the scriptures that uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we may feel guilt, we may feel shame and fear and despair and all kinds of negative things, and yet your thoughts toward us are always good and kind and courteous and loving and life-giving. So we come to you today to receive of your word by which man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we honor you today. We thank you that you are the supreme judge, that you are the sovereign king, that you are Lord of lords, that you are the babe of Bethlehem, the Christ of Calvary, the uh, spirit giver of Pentecost, and that you are the one who defends us and who honors us and who corrects us when needed, but you do not condemn us. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want you to know before we go to the scriptures that if you can get this truth down in your soul that God does not condemn you. In other words, he does not shame you. He does not punish you in a way to belittle you. Then you will be set free. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that if you know the truth, then truly you'll be my disciples and the truth will set you free. And elsewhere in the scriptures, the apostle Paul says that it is for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. So I pray today that freedom rings in your heart and in your mind and in your family and all your relationships and in all that you do. Let us look toward John chapter 8. And before we look there this morning, starting in verse 2, as we examine this idea that let the one without sin throw the first stone, you may see in your Bible that you have this passage as a footnote. It may have double brackets around it or something like this because it is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And so just by way of disclaimer, some people look at that and they're like, well, what's going on? Um, When John's Gospel was first written, I typed up my sermon this morning, but it was all handwritten. And they took those first copies of the gospel, of the letters, and they gave it to churches, and churches made secondary copies, where, and then that copy went around, and, and a church in Ephesus had a second copy, and all that we have of the New Testament, of all the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Revelation, 1 John, James, all those, we have second copies. We don't have the very first autograph that John wrote, that Luke wrote, that the author of Hebrews wrote. But what we believe is is that those original autographs were what was inspired. We have the secondary copies that were copies, okay? We have a lot of them. We have over 5,200 in Greek. It's the most well-attested document of the ancient world. More than Homer's Odyssey, more than the histories of Rome, more than all these other things. And yet this account is not in the earliest copies of the New Testament. And we don't exactly know why, but uh, we believe that it is indeed written by the apostles. And the early church father, Augustine of Hippo, the bishop Augustine, he said that he thought why it wasn't included in the oldest copies of the New Testament were because people who were writing copies of it, as they saw the originals from John, thought that this story was a story that was dangerous to the church. Because Christians would go easy on sin. 
interesting theory as we go to it here this morning. Let's go ahead and read the words of Jesus that are perhaps, according to Augustine's theory, dangerous words because so much grace is given. Let's receive of the grace this morning. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. This is Jesus. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So just imagine it with me. Nothing is happening right away. Jesus slowly bends down and writes on the ground with his finger. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is a radical story. This is a story of grace. The religious leaders are trying to place Jesus in a darned if you do, darned if you don't dilemma. The law of Moses said this about adultery, and they all knew it. Leviticus uh, chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now, the wife of his neighbor means it's it's just a way of saying anyone else, okay? Uh, Everyone's considered our neighbor in the Old Testament like that. It's also said in Deuteronomy verse 22 and 24 of chapter 22, it says this, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Did you catch that? Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So this is 1,400 years before Christ. What God told to Moses from Mount Sinai and then further revelation Uh, 1,400 years before Christ. And verse 24, Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. So that's why they want to use stones, because of Deuteronomy chapter 22. Based on these scriptures, who was missing from the accusations that were brought to Jesus? The man. The man. Man or man. Yes, it takes two, doesn't it? The man was missing. It was probably the case that the accusers were protecting the man who was with this woman for whatever reason. They were both adulterers, and they were caught in the act of adultery. These accusers were part of a conspiracy that used an act of adultery to be used as a trap for Jesus. 
Last week, I was thinking about this, Michelle. Michelle was asking me, I had a quote last week from Francis Schaeffer. What he said was this in his sermon in 1984. It's on YouTube, Francis Schaeffer, A Christian Manifesto. He said that we, as Christians, are not to see conspiracies everywhere, but there are those who do conspire. And here, the authorities have conspired so that they could condemn Jesus on the one hand if he does one thing, and they can condemn Jesus on the other hand on the other. But they cloak it, okay? They cloak it in this self-righteous attitude that they're concerned about morals. They're concerned about this woman caught in adultery, right? And yet there's one of the adulterers who is missing. They were not really concerned about stopping sin like they said they were. This was a sham. This was a setup. They thought they could outsmart Jesus and catch him in a dilemma. But nobody, and I say nobody, outsmarts Jesus. And when you are caught between a rock and a hard place, Jesus will not be outsmarted in your situation either. You cry for mercy. You say, oh Lord Jesus, I need help to figure out this confusion. I need help to figure out this situation because I, I can't figure it out. That's why the Bible says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And he will expose the paths that are crooked also. Uh, I was quoting Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. So here's the dilemma. If Jesus said not to stone her, then they would accuse him of disregarding the law of Moses. And they would tell all the people who were following him, you know, oh, sure, Jesus is compassionate. Well, look at how hard-nosed he is here in this situation. So on one hand, he would disregard the law of Moses that you've seen up here. If Jesus said to stone her, go ahead and do it. Let's fulfill the law of Moses. Then he would be breaking Roman law and they would go to the Roman authorities and they'd say, guess what? This rabbi, Yeshua of Nazareth, he wants to kill somebody. And yet Roman law was that all throughout the Roman Empire in the first century, the kingdoms that were under them, the vassal kingdoms, the, the subjugated kingdoms, could not put somebody to death. In other words, they couldn't execute a capital crime, you know, I mean, punish it, without the Roman authority saying, okay, you're coming before a Roman court, not a Jewish court or a Galatian court or a, you know, whatever, you know, a Serenian court. You had to come before the Roman court in order to get them to put the person to death. That's why you remember in the crucifixion of Jesus, the religious leaders, Caiaphas, Ananias, they had to go to Pontius Pilate to get him to crucify Jesus. They couldn't do it on their own because of Roman law. So Jesus doesn't do anything immediately. He writes on the ground. And did you know that this is the only record that we have of Jesus ever writing anything? We don't know that he wrote a book. We're pretty sure he didn't, actually. We don't know that he wrote a letter. Uh, we don't know that he initialed wood, you know, or things like this as a carpenter. We have no record anywhere of Jesus ever writing on stone or paper or clay, but we have one record of Jesus writing in the dust with his finger. 
but we don't know what he wrote. But if you were to guess, what would you say that he wrote? Fake news. All right, that's good. Yeah, that's good. The sins of the accusers. What's that? The man's name. Really good. I didn't think of that. Possibly he wrote the man's name. Um, other thoughts? We don't know, okay? But it's fun to speculate, right? We just simply don't know. But... Some people say that he wrote down what he would say next. Some people say that he was doodling. Some people say, what if that's what it turns out to be when we get to heaven? <laughs> Jesus said, I just was waiting to hear from the Father, so I was doodling. <laughs> Some people say that he wrote the sins of the men who, were, who had the stones in their hands. Some people say that he was writing the law that like these men broke, which would have been um, going along, you know, because it was a setup. So they were at least waiting while the adultery was happening, possibly even watching, unfortunately. Um, one theory that has a scripture that you could attach to it, but again, we don't know, so keep that in mind, but this is a really cool scripture. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Just previously in the chapter, Seven Before this, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up at the crowd, and what does he say? Let me turn there in John chapter 7. I should have had John open here. This is what he actually says in John chapter 7, verse. Let me find it. See, this is why it's good to bring your Bible. I have to bring my Bible. By the way, I have many Bibles, which is a sign of mental illness, but I get excused. <laughs> I get excused because I use them for study. Okay, John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is that fountain of living water, and it could be that he was writing in the earth those who had forsaken the Lord and who would be put to shame. But in the end, we don't know but that's a fascinating scripture, isn't it? The authorities thought that they could put Jesus over a trap door and then pull the lever and they would catch him. But Jesus never backed down from a challenge like this. I just love, I love Jesus for being Savior. I love Jesus for being my advocate. I love Jesus for not condemning me when I am in the position of this woman, okay? Now realize this, when you read the scriptures like this, at some point or another, it doesn't have to be the sin of adultery, but sin, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, the scriptures say. And at some point or another, we are all in the position of the accused. We are all guilty of some kind of guilt. We're, none of us are perfect, right? And so we are in the position of this woman. But God bids us to be in the position of Jesus. Luke 6.36 says, Be merciful as your Father who art in heaven is merciful. 
uh, Henry Nguyen, who taught, I think, at Yale and at Harvard, and he was a Catholic priest. He's gone home to be with the Lord, but he wrote a book about the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and Charles Dickens, who we're going to write, I mean, who we're going to watch a movie about Charles Dickens on Wednesday night, Charles Dickens said that the greatest story in all of human literature is the story of the prodigal son. And you know that the prodigal son is the one who comes to the father and he says, I want you to divide up the land with me right now, cash me out. And he takes his inheritance and he goes to a foreign land and he wastes it all on wild living. That's what it means to be prodigal, is wasteful. But then he hits the lowest of lows where he's feeding pigs and he realizes, if I were just an employee, a slave in my father's house, then I would eat better than I am right here. And it says in Luke chapter 15 that he came to his senses. He came to himself. And we all come to ourselves like the prodigal son, like the adulterous woman. We come to ourselves and we return to the father. And so he goes back to the father and he has his line rehearsed and he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Now if you only just treat me like a slave. But instead, the father treats him like a son like nothing had ever happened. They get out the royal signet ring that means that he could conduct business for his father. They put on the robe over him. They, they put shoes back on his feet, which means that his position was totally restored with the father. But there's somebody who was mad, the older brother. He says, I've worked for you all these years and you've never thrown a party for me. And yet here you kill the fattened calf and you welcome home the son who's wasted all this money with riotous living and with prostitutes. And the father tells that older brother, he tells him, he says, you know what? Everything I have is yours. But your son who was lost has been found. Your son who was dead is now alive and we're going to celebrate. We're going to party. And that's what God does when we come to our senses, he's the father who does not condemn, but the father who restores. Now, we still have reason as prodigal sons and daughters to feel like we don't deserve it, but guess what? God's grace is better than you deserve. God's mercy is wonderful, and, and, and it's, it's awesome. And so Henry Nguyen said this. He said that at first, when he, when he heard the, the story of the prodigal son, he said, I realized that I was in the position of the wasteful son in deep need of the father's mercy. But then he said as time went on, he realized that he was actually in the position of the older brother, judging other people, thinking that he was better because, you know, of, of education or his position in the church or because he was chosen or whatever it is, Okay. And he realized that that wasn't the position to take. And here with this story of the, the woman, this account of the woman that's caught in sin, the older brother position is certainly taken by the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The authorities who supposedly, oh, we're, we're looking after society here, you know? But they weren't. Nguyen says that we as believers are invited to be like the Father, compassionate, gracious, loving, forgiving, overlooking, okay? Because that's where life is. And this Sunday, the second Sunday of Advent, we're celebrating love. 
Jesus said, and I've had people ask me, what's it mean in the Gospel of Matthew 5.48 when it says, be perfect as your Father who art in heaven is perfect. The word perfect is teleos, which means complete or mature, okay? Um, in other words, fulfilling its purpose. Under the principle of scripture, interpreting scripture, being perfect as our Father art in heaven, you might think that that's out of reach, but it's not because you know people say, oh, nobody's perfect. Well, that's true, but aren't some people mature? Aren't some people complete? Aren't some people human? I already gave you the scripture that interprets this. Luke 6, verse 36. Be merciful as your Father who art in heaven is merciful. When you are merciful with other people, when you realize they are only human and they are also in need, in deep, deep need of grace, then you are acting like the father of the story of the wasteful son. Then you are acting like Jesus in the account of the woman caught in adultery. Then you are operating with life, with vitality, with forgiveness, with grace. And what it means to operate in those things is to be like Christ. Because as he is in this world, so also we should be. Because he's the firstborn, Romans 8, he's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters so that we would be conformed to his image, that we would be restored like Adam and Eve, that once again, these men and women and boys and girls gathered here today, we reflect the divine image of our Father. Because what it is to be human is to be created in God's image. Are you hungry for that? I'm hungry for that. And I'm thirsty for that. That's called righteousness and joy and peace. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. Now for the rest of the story. Jesus knew this, that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, that the law said this. It said, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. In the history of law, we find that the lawgiver from Mount Sinai has given us the principle that you cannot condemn someone based upon a sole accuser. That's what this verse is about. The next verse, verse 7 of Deuteronomy 17, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him or her to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So when they had more than one witness, it was to be the witnesses who were to cast the first stone, okay? So the witnesses were supposed to throw the first stone. Jesus chose the law of Moses over Roman law. He sided with Moses. The woman was guilty and deserved to die, but so did the accusers because they were not just witnesses to adultery. They were complicit in this scheme. Jesus' response is not to overturn the law. Rather, he will expose the hypocritical bloodthirst of the authorities. He examined the witnesses and told them God's standard for them. Let the one without sin be the first to throw the stone. And you know, among this crowd of people, 
that were around this woman, uh, who qualified under that, that standard? Let the one without sin be the first to cast the stone. Who qualified? Jesus. And Jesus only. And still today, only Jesus qualifies to condemn us, and yet he chooses not to. In the preacher's commentary on this, uh, I think it's edited by uh, Lloyd Ogilvie, James Lloyd Ogilvie. It, it, it really puts it well, better than I can. They write this. Suddenly, what they've attempted to make a legal issue is seen as a deeply personal, moral matter. A group of proud, righteous men now find themselves on the same ground as the woman they are about to stone. And isn't it interesting that, you know, here, it would seem that they are indeed taking advantage of a woman. There is a gender element to the story, okay? Wherever Christianity has gone, it has elevated, esteemed, and honored women and children as well as men. And this idea of women's suffrage, it was a, a, in large part an evangelical Christian movement to get women the right to vote. It was tied to prohibition, too, if you look into the, the roots of the whole thing. We're not trying to champion ourselves, but we're saying that around the world, the cause of women has been a Christian cause, that where you see the gospel go, you see, you see the rising tide of women's rights elevated. There was a Hindu woman who said that the Bible, the New Testament, must have been written by a woman because of all the kind things that it says about women. It was when the gospel went to India. Sorry I'm on a, on a side here, but we live in a day where men and women are pitted against one another in our popular culture. The gospel unites us. It unites uh, Europeans and Africans and Asians. It unites men and women. It unites young and old. It unites uh, the poor with the rich. You have, you have beggars who come to Jesus. You have sickly who come to Jesus, as well as healthy people, as well as rich guys like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, people of high esteem and people of low esteem. We are all one in Christ. Can I get an amen, amen. and a hallelujah? So when the gospel came to India, they decided to stop the practice of sati. Sati, you might have heard me talk about this before, but I, I feel led to share this. Sati was where when a, when a wealthy man died who had a bunch of women, that he died and he was on this kind of like big log raft, a pyre as it were, and they'd send it down the river, they'd light the thing on fire so that he died, he was cremated and all his surviving widows were with him. That was the value they placed on women until the gospel of Christ came to India with the preaching of the gospel through William Carey and other British missionaries. History is awesome. And those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Back to this quote. These righteous people who thought they were so good, their pious armor has been pierced as each one faces the depths of his own sinful nature. Each has to deal with the inner darkness which is so closely intertwined with self-righteous legalism. The savage delight in catching this woman in the act of sinning, the pompous pride in being able to use her as a shameful test case, or the vengeful anger which drives them to get at Jesus. Are not these the ugly passions that we all hide? Now she's facing the merciful judge who is not her enemy, 
but he neither minimizes, minimizes nor covers up her own sin. She is to rid herself of it, cut it out of her life like she would a cancer, otherwise it will destroy her. Jesus will always judge our sin, but Jesus also shows her mercy. The door of grace has been opened, and she has been given an opportunity for a new beginning. He will not condemn her. Guilt is not the last word, but hope. Father, we thank you for the dangerous grace that even us in the church sometimes don't want to unleash upon the world upon our relationships, upon our businesses, upon our thinking about all kinds of issues that come against us or that we think about. May we not be in the position of the Pharisee or the scribe. May we not be in the position of the accused. Uh, And yet, Father, we know that none of us is without sin. And yet, Father, help us to remember this powerful story of hope and love and mercy. That, yes, we don't deserve your mercy and grace. And help us to remember that none of us ever did. When we see other people doing wrong, when we find ourselves doing wrong, Father, help us to realize that we are people who've received freely from you so that we can be free like this woman was given freedom by Jesus. And... uh, We just thank you for this story of grace, so we honor you, because stories like this change our lives when we weave them into the fabric of our hearts and our minds. May we do that this Christmas season in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go in peace.